0: As you're listening to this episode, we would love to hear your feedback. If you get a chance, please send us a message to haaspodcasts with an S at berkeley.edu or join our discussion board using our Clever podcast app. You can download the app at clever.fm. Hey, listeners. We've got another rebroadcast, this time with economics professor Shahar Khadiv, who teaches economics for business decision-making aka microeconomics. The original episode was released in August of 2020, but a lot of the content is still relevant if you replace class of 23 with 24. We also spoke about teaching during the pandemic, but who knows, maybe they'll come in handy later this term. Knock on one that doesn't, of course. Anyway, this was a really fun conversation as we spoke about everything from fundamental trade-offs in life to Shahar's most and least favorite vegetables. I had a blast and hope you have as much fun listening as I did talking. Welcome to Hear Haas, a student-run podcast connecting you to students and faculty within the Berkeley Haas community. Today, we're joined by Shahar Khardiv, a visiting professor and the former department chair of economics. He currently teaches game theory and microeconomics for EMBA and Evening Weekend students. Welcome to the podcast, Jahar.
1: Thank you. Thanks, Ray, for having me and great pronunciation of my name.
0: (laughs) All right. So first, just tell us about your background and how you came about teaching here at Haas.
1: I was born in Israel. And I started, when I went to undergrad, I wanted to study math and physics. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: But for reasons that it will be too long to get into, I ended up basically in my first semester of undergraduate, I ended up that I was only able to audit one class. And the only class that fits with my schedule was a higher division elective on game theory, in the math department in Tel Aviv University. And this was Mm -hmm. a a life changing experience. Uh, I said to myself, oh my goodness, you can actually describe human being in terms of mathematical modeling. And Mm -hmm. this caught me immediately. So I did my undergrad in economics and then I liked it so much that I also did my PhD in economics Mm at NYU in fields that we call decision theory and game theory. We can discuss them later. And when I graduated, when I got my PhD, my first
0: job was Berkeley. And Mm. um, that's it. So why were you interested in doing a PhD in the United States of all places?
1: Asking a question like this for an academic, I think, uh, you know, Mm. in all modesty is like asking a basketball player, why do you want to play in the NBA and not anywhere Mm. else? Uh, You Mm. know, U.S. academia became the center of gravity for academia. And actually, what we consider the first research university in the United States is Berkeley. Uh, Mm. Then the history is actually that the rise of U.S. academia happened between World War I and World War II. Many mm. people from Europe actually left and came to the United States. And you know, mm. now it's the center of gravity. So even though when I went to PhD, I honestly thought that I will return to Israel and Israel have great mm-hmm. universities. It was clear to me that if I want to do a PhD, uh, I need to do it outside. And, you know, I enjoyed every episode of my life, but if I could turn back time and go to one of them, I would become back a PhD student. It was a wonderful experience. Right. uh, People from all over the world, and we all came here to the United States. And then some of us stayed.
0: Yeah. I want to shift gears and talk about some of the research that you've done since you've came over to the U.S., you have done a good amount of this research in the realm of social science. Can you tell us about some of the topics that you generally study and research about?
1: So, you know, I would say that I am uh, a theorist. I'm what is called a decision theorist. Uh, But I also care not only about writing models that will describe human behavior, but also confronting these models with data. So we can actually test these models and improve these models. Now, all models in economics are wrong. Let's start with this. Because because it's just, it's a model. It's a simplification of the world. And Mm -hmm. you know, uh, many times, actually a good model in economics is actually what I call strong and wrong. Meaning you make a strong (laughs) prediction, And Mm -hmm. because you make a strong prediction, it is easy to falsify these predictions with an available set of data. You know, you need to make many decisions in life. Life is just an infinite sequence of decisions. But I would actually argue that all decisions in life, large and small, financial or not financial, are basically governed by three trade-offs. I call these trade-offs the fundamental trade-offs in life. The first trade-off is the trade-off that I call risk versus return. Think for yourself, for example, if we'll talk about financial domain, should I put my money in stocks or in bonds? Bonds, there is less risk but a lower expected return. Stocks are riskier but have a higher expected return. So this is the first fundamental trade-off in life. It is risk versus return. The second trade-off is the trade-off that I would call the trade-off between today and tomorrow. You can mm-hmm. think about it like consumption today versus consumption tomorrow. Should I buy this car or should mm-hmm. I put the money aside and be able to basically consume more in the future? So this is the trade-off between today and tomorrow. By the way, this trade-off doesn't only govern Uh, financial decisions. For example, uh, should I eat this cookie? This is what I want to do
0: today. (laughs) Yeah, short-term pleasure versus long-term weight gain. Exactly.
1: Or, you know, take, for example, any health behavior, also exercising. Uh, Very few people, Mm -hmm. I believe them, that they actually find it fun to go to the gym. You know, maybe if you go to the gym just to look around, to socialize, and then you leave. (laughs) Then maybe it's fun, fun. but actually, you know, working (laughs) at the gym, it's sweating. Uh, It's fun when it's over. So this is the second trade-off, today Mm -hmm. versus tomorrow. The third trade-off is the trade-off that I call self versus others. And this Mm -hmm. is the trade-off between your own well-being and the well-being of other people. For example, when you save for your retirement, you need to make a decision how much money you are going to leave for your kids and right. uh, how you are going to allocate the money among your kids. So any, any decision that is altruistic in nature is basically about self versus others. Now, I know that people think that economists think that everyone is on payoff maximizer. Basically you are perfectly (laughs) selfish. But you know, Mm. even hardcore economists don't actually believe this. Of course Mm. we have altruistic preferences, but different people have different altruistic preferences. So a lot of my research has been about basically understanding, modeling, The preferences with which people are solving this risk versus return trade offs, today versus tomorrow, and sell versus others. And also using laboratory experiments, especially, trying to see how accurate these models are. And, you know, because in many, many decisions uh, we are basically doing via agents, for example, Mm -hmm. When you decide how to invest, you go to a financial advisor. But if the financial advisor doesn't know your attitudes towards risk, how you are basically trading Mm -hmm. off risk versus return, this financial advisor might put you in a portfolio that is actually too aggressive for you, too risky. And then Mm -hmm. when there is a downturn, because (laughs) it doesn't fit your preferences, you are actually going to sell exactly at the wrong time.
0: Mm, right, I think we're potentially seeing that early this year with starting with the epidemic Absolutely. or with the pandemic. I read in some of your research that you define social preference as the trade-off between what we had just talked about, right? Being selfish versus fair-minded. Yes. Can you elaborate on some of the insights that you found uh, in terms of you know is there any correlation of selfish versus fair-mindedness across Cultures across different genders and across even different professions.
1: That's uh, that's a good question. Uh, you actually you've done your homework. Uh, <laughs> so we actually tested or solicited the social preferences of uh, a very large sample of Americans and also. Particular samples that I can talk later about that they are of a very particular interest. Mm -hmm. There are a couple of important messages from this research. The first research is that, you know, Americans are actually very altruistic, but uh, they are very heterogeneous on how altruistic they are, you know, and towards Mm -hmm. who they are altruistic. You know, some people think that success is because of luck. Some people think that success is because of work. And of course, given your belief that you have about who is successful, who, who is wealthy, this will determine your social preferences. You know, people that actually believe that if you are poor, you probably either been unlucky or you actually had a bad starting point are, of course, more Mm -hmm. likely to be altruistic than people that think that if you are poor, well, you didn't work hard enough. We know these arguments, but we were Mm -hmm. able to actually to document them in details. And, you know, I will say now, following your question, I always say to students, maybe it's the most important thing I'll tell you in my career. So, you, know, you kind of asked me the question, uh, let's say, are there differences in socio-demographics in how altruistic you are? For example, are, are female more altruistic than male? Because, you know, we always try to organize the world in our heads in terms of socio demographics Is one ethnicity are more altruistic than another ethnicity. Are people at some point in the income distribution are more or less altruistic than people above or below in the income distribution? Are people in the East Coast are more altruistic than people in the West Coast, et Etc. Et so here is the important sentence. There is more heterogeneity in altruism within sociodemographics than across sociodemographics. So people vary a lot in their levels of altruism and these variations cannot be explained simply by sociodemographics. Now of course if you do simple difference in means you might actually find that one sociodemographic is more altruistic than other but this is missing the point because even mm-hmm. though you might actually have difference in means the distributions are actually so wide that, right, you know, so
0: the variance. The
1: variance, exactly. Exactly. So, you know, one thing that I learned from my research that actually, you know, I always find comforting, you know, we, we need comfort these days. We, we debate. We debate about taxation and redistribution. But given mm-hmm. my research, I understood why we are debating. We are debating because our preferences that govern our views about taxation and redistributions are so heterogeneous. So, you know, the debates are healthy. We we can actually, of course, have the debates in a more (laughs) civilized manner. That will always be good. Uh, But, you know, there are real issues and we have different preferences. So we should, uh, you know, respect the heterogeneity in preferences that we have.
0: So when you say there's more heterogeneity within social groups, for example, for people who are lower income, right, there's actually a lot of variety in terms of their preference or in terms of their altruism within this group than, for example, across like income groups. Exactly.
1: However, but there is a big however. You want to to hear the however? There is always however, right? On one hand, on the other hand. And as I told you, the research was done with the general population. It really it was thousands of Americans. But there are specific groups that you know we inspect very carefully. One group that we actually studied very, very carefully over you know, more than a decade are students at Yale Law School. Wow, that's a pretty niche group. Okay. But this niche group is actually unbelievably important. Let me give you let me tell you why. You know, we all for example talk about the people that are sitting in the Supreme Court, whether they are liberals, whether they are conservatives, many issues. Which of course, just look at the decision that happened last week. Five to four, yes.
0: Many of them recently. Many of fact, them recently. The last two or three weeks we've had a few uh, major yes, Supreme Court absolutely. decisions, and we saw some of the justices flipped, so that you know they were typically more of a conservative background, yes. but they voted with the liberals. Yes. Okay, so what does your research tell us about that?
1: What is what is my, what is our point? So first, these decisions have a lot to do with social preferences. Basically, the welfare of one group on one hand versus the welfare of another group on the other hand. So these nine judges that are very important in the U.S., actually their social preferences is extremely important. Of course, they are interpreting the law, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: but they are interpreting the law in the lenses of their social preferences. Mm -hmm. Okay, now, you know how many of the nine Supreme Court justices are graduate of Yale Law School and Harvard Law School?
2: All of
0: them.
1: Wow. All of them. Except, except Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who basically, she started at Harvard, but she graduated from Columbia because her husband found a job in New York as a tax lawyer.
2: Wow. So
1: we, we have to understand, you know, we live in a democracy, but eventually a lot of the decisions are made by what groups that I would call elites.
0: Right. There's not too much diversity.
1: Yes. And it's, by the way, it's not only in this country, it's also in other countries. Mm -hmm. which can bring us to this paper about Tanzania that uh, that we can speak about. So you can actually think that, you know, the people that are actually are going to make decisions uh, have preferences that are different than their constituencies. So we did it with two important groups. One is the yellow schools. The other people that are actually their altruistic preferences are extremely important, providers of medical care. Physicians, mm-hmm. because if you think about physicians, you know, this is the only profession that actually you, there is an oath that you need to make that you are altruistic. Wow, really? Yes. So the social preferences of physicians is, uh, you know, especially during these times of the coronavirus, mm-hmm. um, you know, whether, you know, you wake up in the morning and you actually go to these hospitals, you know, it's your job, but there is more than this. You actually have to be altruistic. We did this experiment, and actually, we published the paper already years ago, showing that actually the students that are the medical students are actually not more altruistic. Let me put it this, this way than the law students. Oh,
0: that's un that's unfortunate to hear.
1: Uh, yes, uh, I I thought so too. <laughs> However. Uh, this is not in a paper yet. Uh, We are just now finishing the experiments with actual physicians Mm. that actually have been on the job for, you know, a decade, two decades. Mm. And actually, they are much more altruistic than the general population. So it might be that when you go to medical school, you know, your altruistic preferences are not shaped yet. Mm. But after years on the job, you learn something, you know, preferences change. You know, I, I, I didn't like sushi and now I cannot (laughs) live without
2: sushi.
0: So my
1: preferences changed, you know, maybe one day I will start liking classical music. Who knows?
0: (laughs) Right. Well, I wonder how much of that do you think is, is generational? You know, did you control for like the ages of the participants as well?
1: You're asking good questions. (laughs) So yes, so we controlled for it. I don't think it's generational. Mm -hmm. We have people that really kind of old in their eighties and their nineties did the experiment and people, you know, people at the towards the end of their life I would say they lose they lose their altruism. (laughs) They become a bit they become a bit grumpy. Okay. Let's put it this way it's understandable. It's
0: understandable. <laughs> yeah, cuz it's understandable because, you know, you probably at that point you might be lonely. You might not no, have a spouse, uh, a living absolutely. spouse. And absolutely. even for the younger generation, I feel like I don't know, maybe if you're in, when you're in med school, when you're completing the survey or the study, you might be very stressed because you're a med school student and then you realize you don't have to work eighty hours per week. You might have to work sixty hours sometimes if it's if the hospital is short-staffed. But those eighty-hour residency weeks are, are behind you. You know, I guess there's a few different ways you can interpret that, but the end result is, if we do get sick, at least in our minds, we can think that the people that are taking care of us are altruistic compared Correct. to the general population. Correct. Awesome. Correct. So the most recent paper that you wrote that came out, I believe it was last month, uh, was about a study that you did comparing UC Berkeley students to students at the top uh, university in Tanzania. We talked earlier about how maximizing utility can affect decision making as a whole. But in your study, I think you were looking at how that affected the economic decision making. And so can you just elaborate on this experiment, what you did and what the results were?
1: Yes. So we talked about kind of what I would call elite groups. And, you know, here you basically see that the leadership is coming from schools like Harvard, Princeton, Yale, and Berkeley. Mm -hmm. In Tanzania, you know, they all come from the University of Dar es Salaam. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the president, the prime minister, they are all graduates of the University of Dar es Salaam. So even though the Berkeley student and the University of Dar es Salaam students, they are very different. They are coming from different backgrounds. You know, they represent the same slice mm-hmm. in their respective societies. This is the slice that... We know from research in development economics, this is the slice that actually should get the economy going. Mm-hmm. These are first decision makers, second engineers. So we wanted to compare these two groups of students that, again, they are very, very different. However, they are the same basically parts of their society. Sure. And we did it in two ways. First, we did it in the standard psychology way by basically just giving them a standard IQ test. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And secondly, we also, using experimental economics, we measured what we'll call their economic rationality. Basically, whether they are maximizing the utility function. And what we found is that there were huge differences in IQ scores between these two groups. Actually, the differences were so big that the top 10 percentile in Tanzania was the bottom 10 percentile at Berkeley.
2: Oh, wow. So if
1: you you actually think that I don't, but many people do, that IQ tests are actually measuring something about human capital. Mm -hmm. So if you believe that IQ is a good measure of human capital, you basically say to yourself, Hmm, that's a problem, because the future leaders of Tanzania are actually coming from a group that actually have pretty low IQ, Mm -hmm. as measured by these IQ tests.
0: Mm -hmm, Right.
1: What we found using our economic test is still, Berkeley students are more economically rational. However, the differences are actually very small, and there is a very large fraction of Tanzanian students that are actually uh, as regional as the Berkeley students,
2: mm-hmm.
1: right. so it's, it gives you a completely different picture about these two populations. Okay. And you know, I think that this picture is extremely, extremely important.
0: So then, what can we take away from this experiment that you did comparing the economic decision making of U.S. leaders versus Tanzania. Like, do you think that a potential difference in maybe the GDP between some countries and others are because that the top students or the top kind of layer in their society maybe has a lower ability to capitalize their utility?
1: So, you know, this is a big debate in the social sciences, why some countries are rich and some countries are poor. (laughs) And, you know, there are competing explanations. So, you know, what is the first explanation? It's kind of obvious. is that some countries have resources and other countries don't have resources. So it's about resources. Mm -hmm. By the way, the case of Africa actually goes against it, where the countries that actually have the most natural resources are the most dysfunctional. Because actually there is a fighting over these resources, okay? Mm. So, but the first issue is resources. If a country has resources, okay? The second is about institutions. And you know, you need to develop institutions in order to have uh, economic growth. In order to do business, you need institutions. So like, you know, for example, you need a court system, you need a tax system, Mm. you need institutions. So the first was okay. resources, the second was institutions. Okay. And the third one, which is, I must say, it's the most controversial, is basically say that in some countries, you know, you know people are smarter. I don't know even how to say it. Mm-hmm. They're just making better decisions. Right. And our research will basically dispute this. Now, what is the important implications of this research? Mm-hmm. Let's suppose that you are sitting in the World Bank and uh, if you're sitting in, if you're an economist in the World Bank, you probably graduated from Harvard, MIT, Princeton, etc.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And you have a large pot of money that you need to basically invest in Tanzania. So you know one decision that you need to make is whether I'm going to make the decisions what to do with this money myself, or mm-hmm. I'm actually going to hand this money to the local government. and actually the people in the local government will make the decisions now. I truly believe that the World Bank doesn't want to actually have a paternalistic view on Tanzania. Now, of course, corruption is always a problem when you talk about these things, but mm-hmm. you know, still, I'm sure that the people in the World Bank, they want the Tanzanians to make the decisions for themselves. Hmm. Our research basically shows that they can. Maybe they are not graduates of Berkeley, MIT, and Harvard. But in terms of their ability and economic rationality, they certainly can. If you look at IQ, you will get a different message.
0: I think um, IQ tests, while they're fun to complete, I don't know how much yes. they actually reflect upon our our intelligence. Yeah, yeah Don't don't get don't don't even <laughs> get me
1: started. You know, I was actually in Tanzania and I saw this um, IQ test given. You know, these IQ tests are multiple choice tests. Mm-hmm. And what I found very funny is that, you know, people in Tanzania asked me, why are you giving us this answer? Are you trying to help us or confuse us? (laughs) They are not used to take multiple choice tests.
0: Mm, Okay. So there might be an advantage if you've been exposed to this uh, method of testing that's not not controlled for. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Okay. Fair enough. Thank you for sharing some of your research with us, Professor. I think what I want to talk about next is just your career teaching at Haas. We talked about the pandemic. We're recording here in the 1st of July and still somewhat under a quarantine. Obviously, your classes have moved remote as with almost everyone at Haas yeah. and probably a lot of teachers, professors worldwide. What do you find to be most challenging about teaching remotely?
1: Yeah, I rather teach in the classroom. Yeah. But I wouldn't say that I had any challenge. <laughs> the only challenge is that I bought myself uh, what I had to buy. This was the only challenge. Mm-hmm. I bought myself a whiteboard, you know, to home. But this is a very small whiteboard, so I have to erase all the time. So mm-hmm. it's like exercising. So I'm more tired.
0: <laughs> um, right. Instead of doing bicep curls, you're you're moving the eraser.
1: <laughs> exactly. So the second thing that I had to buy, I actually, because I wanted people to actually see my whiteboard, and now it's radio, so you cannot see my whiteboard, <laughs> but uh, I can send you a picture. We can put it on the show <laughs> notes. Don't worry. <laughs> yes. Okay. That's what we'll do. I'll send you a picture of my wi- of my whiteboard. It, it's, you know, it's like these small boards that you give to kids
0: that they can draw. <laughs> <Got> <laughs> that's it. my whiteboard. Right, I'm sure you have all the colors, right? But, the different um, markers.
1: I, I, oh yes, absolutely. I'll, I'll, I'll also, I'll also okay. show you this. And uh, so the biggest challenge I had to buy a camera, which is better than the kind of you know laptop mm-hmm. camera. So I had to buy it when the quarantine started, and this was very difficult to find because everyone needed mm-hmm. these cameras. Right. So, but after I found my camera and my whiteboard, I must say, you know, I miss, I miss the face-to-face mm-hmm. interaction. Uh, What we are doing now, I'm teaching now, basically, when we are taking a break, we are continuing Mm -hmm. the discussion. Uh, But it's not the same because, you know, a lot of the fun of teaching uh, adults, MBA students, is the interaction. But, you know, we do what we can. And I I think this was just fine.
0: What have you found to be some of the better ways to engage students remotely? Because I, I get you, right? Like... When you have when you're in person in the breaks, you can talk to students individually in small groups. But online, you know, usually during even if you create breakout rooms during breaks, people want to use the restroom. They want to go walk their dog. You know, they okay. want to give a drink. Yes. Uh, I'm talking non-alcoholic, of course. Absolutely. But you know, you're at us.
2: <laughs> you
1: can
0: you can you can have <laughs> a beer in my class. I. I that's fine, okay, we'll bitch. have to leave that part in. <laughs> what are some ways that you found to best engage with students? Okay, so I actually think that uh, the best
1: way is doing it low-tech and Mm -hmm. not high-tech. I'm not breaking into rooms and there is no hand-waving. There is basically, let's try to do what we do in class, just with a camera. Take the kind of old-fashioned whiteboard and basically take a pen and write on the whiteboard. And, you know, we we passed the half of the game theory course that I'm teaching over the summer and based at least on the mid-course evaluations, uh, people love it. And I like it as well because I'm not sitting on my <laughs> butt, uh, you know,
2: speaking into the computer. Yeah.
1: I'm actually, you know, I'm standing in front of a whiteboard, talking
0: to the window, and there are trees. So
1: I pretend to myself that there are people on the trees.
0: But yeah. uh, <laughs> you, can, you can meditate, exercise, and learn economics all at once. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so I think we have some listeners that are going to be in the class of 2023, incoming students. And I want to switch and talk about microeconomics, just a class. What are some key concepts covered in microeconomics?
1: The course is actually, I would basically think about the course less as microeconomics. I would actually think about the course is actually using economic tools um, to provide you guidance into decision making. And this is, I think, is what the course is all about. Let's think about engineering. Suppose that I was an engineer and I told you, I designed this bridge, and I guarantee to you that I never wrote even one mathematical equation when designing this bridge. Would you drive on this bridge? Probably not. Probably not. Why? Because you'll say you can only design a bridge using mathematics. Otherwise, who knows whether the bridge is actually strong enough? Now, in managerial decision-making, I actually think that uh, the more we use mathematics, meaning economic tools, we are going to build better bridges. Mm. (laughs) So this is the Uh entire thing that the course is about.
0: The purpose of this Mm -hmm. course is to give you tools to actually make better decisions. One of the things I learned in... The class that I took with, I think, Jim Saley, one of your colleagues, mm-hmm. is the sunk cost. Hey. And so, you know, sometimes, especially during this pandemic, sometimes if you pay for a monthly benefit at the beginning of the month, and then we go into quarantine or shelter in place, you don't get that money back, but it doesn't mean that you should make decision Absolutely. based off of
1: that. Absolutely. Jim
0: did well. If you remember this, Jim did well. Mm-hmm.
1: Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely.
0: So this year, this fall, we're going to have this class remote for the first time in a while. How will the curriculum be different than years past? Nothing will be different. You know, let me first say that every year is a bit different.
1: What mm-hmm. do I say is a bit different? Uh, I would actually say that, you know, about 20% of the class. Is what I call optional topics. Uh, it's the last 20% of the class, and during the semester we kind of understand each other because you know we, we can do infinite amount of microeconomics, but you know we have 20% that we are actually doing, you know, based on I would say general interest. Mm-hmm. And um, for us, business as usual. It's just <laughs> that uh, we're yeah, that there are,
0: there yeah, are yeah. no no changes whatsoever. All right. So I know you also do some extracurricular work. I think one of the things that you do is work with the Berkeley research venture on X-Mobile. Can you share a little bit about your work? Sure. So, you know, uh,
1: X-Lab is the Berkeley Social Science Laboratory. Uh, it basically uses the Coast Campus, but it's located at Haas. It's in the business school. And, you know, before I became department chair, I was also the director of XLab. I was the faculty director of XLab. We basically, instead of people going into experimental laboratory, which is like a room with computers, we actually wanted to uh, move the laboratory to the mobile. And now we are talking about the early days of mobile. Mm. Why? Because let's suppose that I'm doing an experiment with you about your food preferences. It is one thing to do it with you when you are sitting in the laboratory after breakfast, but it's another thing to do it with you Well, basically I know from your cell that now you are going into a restaurant to eat lunch. The experiment will be that I'm going to give you a coupon for a healthy food. So I want to see whether it changes what you are actually doing. So basically Mm. what XLAB Mobile did they brought experimental research into the field, into the real world, out of the computer lab and into the point of decision. So I know exactly when to actually interact with you. And you know, this was a joint project of people that this was a lot of fun to build. And I'm very happy that other people are now using it, including students.
0: Mm, that's so funny that you mentioned Uh, measuring these decisions at the point of impact versus asking someone because a lot of times people you know even if they know that they're taking part in a survey or in an experiment they're not willing to admit they went to the store to buy cannabis right (laughs) or you know maybe they might be underage I don't know but they're not willing to you know admit that they had three burgers and fries exactly. and a big shake, No, right?
2: but, but
1: by the way, if you ask me at 10 a.m. in the morning, Shafa, what are you going to eat at night? I will tell you, a salad. Uh, when night comes, well. <laughs> <laughs> Right. So this is what we have done. And, you know, um, with XLAB Mobile, there were wonderful research done, including, you know, research on the Berkeley campus. Let me give you an example. Uh, Berkeley has a parking problem. Some parking lots are getting full, others are not. So basically, we did an experiment. People signed up, they had Xlab Mobile on their phone. Now I see you in the morning driving to a parking lot that I know that it will get full. I'm basically sending you, oh, uh, do you want to basically take $2 off your monthly parking permit and park somewhere else?
0: Mm. What were the results? I mean, do we see a group that, took the coupon and they had similar characteristics? Absolutely, so it's
1: all about incentives. So the purpose of this (laughs) experiment was to find the right incentives such Mm. that we can actually get some people to go. Now, of course, who took a lot of these incentives? People that are poorer, students.
2: Mm -hmm. Sure, (laughs) yeah. Or they
1: have less value for their time. (laughs) But yes, it worked very nicely. And um, we continue, you can think about parking in the city, that basically different places will have different price. So you basically know where there is high demand, there will be a different price. How can you know? You can know by basically
0: where the cell phones goes. That is, that's really interesting. You also mentioned that you are a co-founder of a startup.
1: Yeah, uh, I, I, I can talk very quickly about the startup. Uh, that's fine. It, it's also, you know, I would not have done the startup if I didn't mm-hmm. teach for us because it actually <laughs> kind of exposed me to questions in the real world. The startup is a fintech startup in the domain of financial advice. So if you go to a financial mm-hmm. advisor, they have a fiduciary responsibility to do on you what is called risk profiling.
0: Mm-hmm. They basically right.
1: need to know how risk averse <laughs> you are. What oh, is we
0: were talking risk? about this yes, at the beginning. What, yeah. what is
1: your risk tolerance or what is your risk appetite? Mm-hmm. The way that they will do things today is something like, you know, you'll go to a financial advisor and he will ask you, how would you feel uh, losing 20% of your portfolio? Terrible? Very terrible? Extremely terrible? You know, okay, this doesn't mean anything, of course. Uh, multiple-choice questions. So we basically developed some games, graphical games, that by the way that you are actually playing this game and the game involving trading of risk versus return, we can actually measure your risk attitudes with precision. And given the model portfolios that the financial advisor has, we can actually match you, what I would say scientifically, mathematically, To the best portfolio to you. And uh, this startup, you know, it's not what is called B2C, it's B2B. And, you know, the largest financial um, institutions in the world are actually using it under their hood. Mm -hmm. And I must say that the only way that I actually thought about it was having uh, coffees with MBA students. Otherwise, I would not actually, you know, I would stay in the golden cage of academia. The interactions with MBA students over the years gave me, I would say, the courage <laughs> mm. to put one foot in the real world. So uh, wow. I'm very grateful for this.
0: No, that sounds like a great story. Lastly, we want to wrap up with some lightning round questions. <laughs> uh, I can already yeah, tell this is going to be great. Is, is, is um, there
1: also lightning qu- answers, lightning questions?
0: Lightning questions, lightning answers. You can okay. elaborate a little bit. But, I'm uh, ready. So first question, what are some new hobbies, if any, you've picked up while sheltering in place?
1: (laughs) Let me tell you something that I'm very proud of. So, uh, you know, I grew up in Israel and I was uh, like all Israelis, I was in the military. So you can imagine to yourself that I was in a very good shape. You know, something that happened to me, uh, the vision that I had of myself is me in my 20s. So I'm still in good shape. <laughs> but, Great. You know, uh, that, 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 you know, during the <laughs> quarantine, this proved not to be the case. So, um, but uh, the quarantine was actually very good for my health. So I, uh, <laughs> I improved a lot. So Mm, uh, yeah, I always say that in my years in the military, I actually did Mm -hmm. more exercising for a lifetime, so I don't need any (laughs) more. But you know, exercising is a flow, not a stock. Quarantine actually got me back to it, yeah.
0: Well, you already mentioned that you write stuff on the board and have to erase it, so I think your arms are fine. My arms are fine, yes. One (laughs) last thing you have to worry about. Okay, what is the favorite book that you've read for pleasure only?
1: It's actually a book written by uh, a Berkeley resident. The book is called The Undoing Project, The Friendship That Basically Changed Our Mind by Michael Lewis. And it's actually mm-hmm. about the friendship between Danny Kahneman and Amos Tversky. Danny won the Nobel Prize in economics. But it's about mm-hmm. the friendship and, in some sense, the academic journey that they took. And you can see how... Um, You know, great research contributions. You need to have the right minds, but you also need to have the right chemistry. Mm -hmm. I I highly recommend this book.
0: I think that's the same author that wrote Moneyball. That's right. Uh, We had a a guest on who actually works for the Oakland A's, and so we were talking about Moneyball. So that's, uh, that's really cool. Yes. And lastly, I want to ask you, what is your favorite vegetable? And the reason I say that is I actually read that in Tel Aviv, there's like the highest per capita uh, of vegans of anywhere in the world. But you may or may not be vegan. Yeah.
1: No, I'm not vegan. Okay. Uh, Israel Israel has uh, actually great food and great vegetables.
2: Mm.
1: I will tell you about my least favorite vegetable. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Kale is just completely overrated. I basically, I rather eat grass than eat kale.
0: <laughs> wow, oh <laughs> Professor Cardiff, you're you're throwing some hot opinions over here, no filter. I love it. <laughs> um, yeah, I
1: hope I, I I hope I'm not offending
0: kale. <laughs> I would say if this was five years ago, kale is super popular. Somehow, I think it's lost its popularity to maybe avocados. Uh, oh, and yeah, other vegetables. Hucato.
1: Yeah, maybe maybe it's my campaign again. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, the last question for you is: for listeners of the 2023 class, what would you say to them if they're listening to this in preparation for your class?
1: I always say that classes at MBA must be useful, but in order for things to be useful, they must be fun. And if you don't, if you don't have fun in the class, come and tell me. It won't hurt my feeling. Don't worry. You know, my self-esteem is so high that it's impossible
2: (laughs) to insult. I love it.
1: Yeah. If you don't have fun, then there is no learning. There is no learning without fun. So it has to be fun.
0: One of our core pillars is confidence without attitude. So it seems like you definitely have the confidence down, and maybe they'll find (laughs) out about the attitude later. They'll find out. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast today. Hey, thank you very much. This was great. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Here at Haas. If you enjoyed the show, please check out our website at Haaspodcast.org. That's H-A-A-S-P-O-D-C-A-S-T-S dot O-R-G. More interviews with other students or faculty and our sister podcast, One Haas, for interviews with alumni. I'm Ray Guan, and we'll see you next time here at Haas.